of us this morning that we want to see Jesus, that we want to hear him. We're going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of John, picking back up where we were a couple weeks ago. Um, so we're in John chapter 15. Uh, if you want to grab, the, the, the words will be up there, but if you want to grab a Bible and want to follow through, it's on page 902 in the Bible in front of you if you want to follow along. But um, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, this is our request of what we just sang, that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see more clearly who Jesus is, that we would hear his words and that they would not only go into our mind, but that they would sink into the depths of our souls, that we would find them challenging and also comforting. That as we seek to live in this world around us, as those who are followers of Jesus, that you would give us clarity on what we need to do. That you, by your Spirit, would give us assurance and power to do it. And that you would stir within us obedience to actually walk in it, Father. So help us during our time in your word, to see you, to see Jesus with clarity. Like I said before, may the distractions of our minds and our hearts be put off so that we would be able to see and hear Jesus. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Growing up as a Red Sox fan, I'm familiar with one of the biggest rivalries in all of sports, Yankees-Red Sox. Babe Ruth traded in the early 1900s from the Red Sox to the Yankees, where he went and made all sorts of record-breaking achievements. And that name, Babe Ruth, became a hated name in Boston for nearly the next century. Even still today, shirts... And all sorts of fan gear exists showing the hatred that Boston has for New York. Because when a player not only switches teams, but goes to your rival team, the natural response is hate. In fact, I was just in class this past weekend, and my professor happened to be a Yankees fan, And I was wearing a Red Sox zip-up jacket, and he had to make known to me how the Red Sox had lost the three-game series that past week to the Yankees. So even within Christian circles, it's still very well known of the relationship. My friends, we live in a world with two teams. This isn't like the baseball world, where whichever one's going to pay you the most, you might go in a number of different options, you're either followers of the devil or you're followers of Jesus. That's it. No other contracts, no retirement possible. You must pick. And all of us are born on the one team. 
All of us are born following the devil. We're born in sin, living out of our worldly passions, choosing things that only please ourselves. But when we trust in Jesus, give our lives to him, begin to pick up our cross and follow him, well, then we've changed teams. And in a much more intense manner, what do you expect the response to be of our former team? Hate. That's what we see this morning. As Jesus is still in his final night with his disciples, we've seen that they've rise and they've left their dinner, but they're now on their way to the garden, likely, where Jesus is going to pray. He's now teaching them. And he informs them that as they continue to follow him, the world is going to hate them for it. So for us, as those who now have a commitment to Jesus, a commitment to God the Father himself, this former team of ours is not going to be pleased with us. In fact, they often will actively try to stop us. So what do we do when that happens? What do we do when the world hates you? Let's look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus has just finished the beginning part of John chapter 15 on his abiding language. Remember that? Right? As we as the branches abide in Jesus as the vine, we will produce fruit. And then we went and saw a specific kind of fruit, right? That there's a fruit of love. We abide in Jesus' love, and then thus we love one another, right? So as we commit ourselves to Jesus, we find these fruits being produced. This is true of the disciples. 
This is true of us who are in Jesus. But now he gives us the flip side of the coin. As we abide in Jesus, how will those who are not in the vine respond to those who are in the vine? And Jesus plainly states it. We should expect hate. It shouldn't take us by surprise. When your loyalties change, those you stepped away from are going to hate you. I mean, look at how he states it right away in verse 18. If the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. Now, don't get caught up on the word if there. Right? We tend to get the word if and we're like, see, he didn't say it actually was going to happen. But he's anticipating the answer to the if is yes, it's going to happen. Because he gets only a couple verses later and what's he say? They will do these things to you. you know, it, so the if is not, well, it may or may not happen. He's expecting this is going to happen. So notice then, as he continues on, because our first instinct then is, well, so the world is only hateful. It's not capable of love, right? The, the world must not be able to love. Must, and true, it can't love in the same way that Jesus loves, but the world does love, because look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So for those who are still of the world, the world loves them. Those who think like the world, those who chase the desires of the world, the rest of the world looks at them and says, yes, come join us. We love you. We'll take you in as our own. And people find this life quite comfortable, don't they? It's very easy to live in this world who loves you as you chase the desires of the things of the world. They're playing on the same team after all. Why wouldn't they encourage each other to keep pointing in that direction? But for the disciples and for us, if we belong to Jesus, the second half of verse 19 applies. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. So we're called to not be of the world. Instead, Jesus has pulled us out, not that we don't live it anymore, but he's pulled us out from those desires, pulled us out from that way of life. We no longer look at our world the same way that we once did, the same way that some still do look at the world. We don't value what the world values. Our way of life takes a drastic turn, or should take a drastic turn, when we are changed by Jesus. So therefore, what's the result? The world loves its own. We're no longer of the world. Our life is taken a different direction. So Jesus says, therefore, the world hates you. The world doesn't have tolerant feelings towards Christians anymore. I hope we see that in our world, don't we? The world is not just going to say, well, you just go off and live your life however you want to, whatever makes you happy as a Christian. The, the world might say that to a lot of people, but it doesn't say that to Christians. It doesn't say that to Jesus. It actively dislikes, disapproves, rejects, abhors, detests us. Whatever word you want to use. And it's saddening, isn't it? It's heartbreaking that this is the reality that Jesus tells us. Expect that the world's going to hate you. And it's not just his followers. 
It traces all the way back, right? What do you say in verse 18? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it ever hated you. They hated Jesus first. So that's all the more clarity when we get to verse 20 then that he says, remember what I said to you. What's he say? A servant is not greater than his master. If they're going to persecute the master, they're going to persecute the servants, right? So if they take Jesus and they whip Jesus, they put a crown of thorns on Jesus, they crucify Jesus, what do you think they're going to do to Jesus' followers? We cannot expect to call ourselves servant of the Son of God and somehow think we're going to get treated better than Jesus did. I mean, if our Lord got killed because of the hatred of the world, you better expect we're going to get it too. Maybe not killed, but we're going to at least get the hate he's talking about. You know, I've been working with a, a counselee who, before he came to me, he was seeing a secular therapist, and still was during um, our beginning meetings together. And this therapist had been giving him all sorts of medications to deal with his issues. At one point, he was all the way up to nine different medications at once. And he made the decision, and he's like, these aren't helping. I'm actually feeling worse on these than I was beforehand. And so he decided to get off of them and eventually made his way to a meeting with me where it's not my work, but we've been going to Scripture and where the Holy Spirit has begun to work in his life and produced much more fruit than he ever had in some of this therapy. God has been doing a wonderful work in him. Well, after just a couple sessions of me and him meeting together, he gets a call from this facility where he has a secular therapist, and they confront him. They say, so we hear you have a second therapist now. And he proceeded to tell them, well, I don't think it's really any of your business what I do outside of my meetings with you guys. And they pressed him even further, and he said, okay, yeah, I've been meeting with a pastor, and actually he's been, we've been in Scripture together, and God's been doing some really cool things and changing some parts of my life. And What do you think they did? Well, let's just get it out in the open. You don't need two therapists. Make a decision. Really? Choose Jesus or choose the world, basically. My friends, we have the same decision to make, don't we? Where do our loyalties lie? If you're truly committed to Jesus, the world's going to hate you. Do you experience that hate in your life? You heard me ask that correctly. Do you feel like the world hates you? I went home that day rejoicing over that phone call that this guy, this counselee, had shared with me. Not because he was experiencing hate, but because what that meant to me was Jesus was transforming this man's life, and the world didn't know what to do with it. That needs to be true of us. Every single one of us who are committed to Jesus need to say, the Lord is changing my life, and the world's going to look and be like, I don't know what to do with that. And that's fine. They may hate it. They're going to reject it, right? We're told they're going to hate it and reject it. But remember, the world hated Jesus. So they're going to hate us. 
But that leaves us with the question, why? Why does the world hate Jesus? Why does the world hate us? Right? And after all, Jesus is the creator of everything, right? We're told that. Jesus created all of it. And he comes to his own creation and gets rejected by the creatures, the people that he has created. In fact, that's what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. He says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Even his own people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, didn't receive their Messiah. And so Jesus continues. He actually gives us the reason for hate. He doesn't just say, okay, the world's going to hate you. Good luck. He says, let me at least explain it to you here, why the world is going to hate you, why the world hates me. Look first at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, right? So related to Jesus, because they do not know him who sent me. So the world will do these things to Jesus' followers on the account of the name of Jesus because they don't know the one who sent Jesus. Which is clearly a reference to God the Father, right? But imagine such a statement to the Jewish people. Actually, this has been Jesus' entire ministry in the Gospel of John of what we've seen, hasn't it? He's revealing to them over and over again the God they claim to worship is a God they don't really know. The God of their Old Testament is the God who sent Jesus. But since they've responded with hate and rejection to Jesus, that proves they never really knew the God from the Old Testament to begin with. And how many people in our own world make a similar claim? I believe in God, but not in Jesus. Or, I believe in God, and I like these parts of Jesus, but I don't like these other parts of Jesus. To reject, to hate any part of Jesus is to prove that they don't know who God really is. And it's not just knowing the Father. It's not that they just don't know him, right? Nobody's going to come and say, well, I just didn't know. I can claim ignorance. No person is neutral towards God. Look at verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If the world hates Jesus, they hate God, the Father, as well. Remember, Jesus is the revelation of the Father. To see Jesus is to see the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth, as we saw back in John chapter 1. Refusing Jesus is refusing God himself. We need to remember this as we look at the people in the world around us that claim, I believe in God, but I don't want to submit to Jesus. It's not that we are just saying they don't really know God. They hate God. God. That's what Jesus says. If they hate him, if anybody hates him, they also are hating the Father. So where does that leave the world? Since the world doesn't know the Father, since the world hates the Father, what status does that leave them in? Look at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, the works of God himself, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Jesus did all these works, all these miracles, right? Miracles that only God Himself could do, God in the flesh, 
doing all these things, and they reject it. They hate it. Where does that leave them? The status of guilty. Guilty of sin, that's what Jesus says. And he even goes one step further if you jump back to verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. No person is coming to Judgment Day with an exemption paper. No claim of ignorance. Nobody able to say, well, if only this would have happened. If only somebody had told me this. There's no excuse. Jesus came. Jesus spoke. Jesus did the works of the Father. Those that reject Him, hate Him, also hate the Father. And they're left guilty. But while Jesus ties all of this together, giving us reasons, right? Not knowing the Father, hating the Father, being charged guilty. He also gives us here at the very end of this portion a reason, which is really no reason at all. Verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now this is a quote from multiple Psalms in the Old Testament, and David saw this in his own life, right? David, who made his share of mistakes, but generally speaking is described as a man after God's own heart, a godly man who loved the Lord and loved his law, and people hated him. Not because of the sin, but just because, simply because he was a man who loved the Lord. They didn't have a cause. They didn't have a genuine reason to hate him. He had all sorts of enemies, though. And this tells us that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of what David wrote. How much more of no cause without a reason are peop- do people not have in order when they hate Jesus? It's a reminder for us of just how irrational sin is. It makes us crazy. The world is so wrapped up in its love for sin that any potential of exposure of that sin makes them push back, right? But think about this. Our God, our holy, perfect, compassionate, gracious, loving, merciful God, they hate. How irrational is that for a world that claims to be loving that they hate the one who created love. They hate the one who is the epitome of love. Or even Jesus himself, who's the embodiment of love. Jesus, the most loving person, the person who never sinned, never wronged a single person in this world. Healed the blind, healed the sick, cast out the demons... The one who gives his very life for our sins. And the world says, at the very best case scenario, apart from Jesus, very best case scenario, the world says, we like that part, but not that part of him. Best case scenario. We don't really want to deal with the reality of our sin. Just give us the affirmation. Tell us how valuable we are. Tell us how wonderful we are. We don't want to hear anything about any changes that need to happen. Which is really what? Hate. I hate the idea of sin. I hate the idea of Jesus. I hate the one who sent Jesus. 
And if they hate Jesus, they're also going to hate us. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have as we live in a Jesus-hating world? That's where Jesus goes next. He gives us the promise of help. Left on our own, the situation is hopeless. It really is. By our own strength, we're not going to accomplish anything fruitful in the midst of a Jesus-hating world. But Jesus promises help. Look at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He reminds the disciples and reminds us that he promised to send a helper, and he did. In Acts chapter 2, after Jesus ascends into heaven, after his resurrection, he sends the Holy Spirit. And for the rest of Christian history, even into our present day, everyone, when they believe in Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit. The helper. Why is he a help to us? How does the Holy Spirit help us? Two reasons, I think, to look at here. First, he is sent by the Son and proceeds from the Father. Now, this can kind of seem confusing at first, and you may be wondering when we read it, why did Jesus include all those details? Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. It sounds like he's being very repetitive, doesn't it? But notice, we're going to get grammatical here for a moment, right? Some of you may not like English, but that's okay. Whom I will send to you from the Father, who proceeds from the Father. We have a future reference, right? Jesus, after his resurrection, after his ascension, will send the Spirit. But what is true of the Spirit, even as Jesus is presently speaking, he proceeds from the Father. So before Jesus ever sends the Spirit, he's already proceeding. He's already in a relationship with the Father, right? This is a clue, a hint on the eternal relationship between the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are all eternal, past, in relationship with one another. And Jesus is saying, even now, while I'm here standing in front of you, the Spirit is proceeding in relationship to the Father. Now, why is this a comfort for us? Why is this helpful for us to remember? Well, what did Jesus just say? about the world's relationship to the Son and the Father. That the world hates them, right? The world hates the Son. The world hates the Father. But now he says what? I'm going to send to you a member of the Trinity who's in eternal past been in relationship with the Son and the Father, and he's going to come to you to help you in a world that hates the Son and the Father. I hope that's a comfort to you. That one member of the Trinity who's eternally in relationship with the Father and the Son comes to help us as we face the world who hates the Father and the Son that we just found out. What better help could you ask for than someone who's always known them and always will know them in a much deeper intimacy than you and I could ever have? 
And as we move on in the verse, we also see with clarity what the Spirit's going to do. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And at the end of the verse, he will bear witness about Jesus. Truth, witness about Jesus. In the midst of a world that hates Jesus, the Spirit is going to witness to us about Jesus. As we're surrounded by a world that believes lies, we're going to have a Spirit who gives us truth. So as we face the world, as we face those lies, as we face those who hate, the Spirit will bear witness to us, remind us, prompt us to run back to what we know to be true. Has anyone ever lost a loved one when you were young in life? And so you had to rely on someone else to tell you stories, to keep memories of that person. Right? You might have gone back to them and say, tell me that story again. Tell me that story again. Right? Just to try to keep this memory fresh. The Spirit operates in a similar way. Now we go back again and again and we get to read the story. Right? We get to read scripture, read about Jesus. But the Spirit, while we're doing that, if we have the Spirit, bears witness to what we're reading. And he says, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can count on that promise. That's going to happen. Yes, you can trust Jesus. Yes, you're seeing clearly what's going on here in this passage and thus in the world. Don't believe the world's interpretation. You've been given a set of glasses by the Holy Spirit that can see things with clarity. The world hates what it can't see. But you do see Jesus clearly if you have the Spirit. So trust Him. But not just trust the Spirit. Not just trust that He's always been in the Trinitarian relationship, not just trust that he's going to bear witness about Jesus, but he's going to help us do something. Verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit doesn't just bear witness to us about Jesus. He helps us bear witness. Just as the Spirit was with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, right? At his baptism, the Spirit descends upon him. The Spirit was with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, so he gets to bear witness about Jesus. The disciples also, right? These disciples have been with Jesus since the beginning. That's what he says. Because you've been with me from the beginning, you also will bear witness. And he tells them that, right? In Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, you might read that and think, ah, I found the exception, right? I wasn't with Jesus from the very beginning, so I don't have to bear witness about him. You might think you found the loophole, but let me remind you of what he just said. Who comes to you to help you? The Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit there at the beginning of his ministry? Was the Holy Spirit there at the beginning of his birth, his conception even? Was the Holy Spirit in relationship with the Son for all eternity in the past? This is not an excuse for those of us who are the fruits of the first apostles for their message. This isn't an excuse for us to say, ah, I wasn't there from the beginning, because you have one in you who was there from the beginning. He bears witness to you so that you also can bear witness about Jesus. My friends, this is an underlying assumption of this entire passage and really the rest of the New Testament. 
There is an assumption that those who believe in Jesus, those who are given the Holy Spirit, are going to bear witness about him. Can you claim to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to have the Holy Spirit in you, but not ever tell anybody about Jesus? I have no clue, biblically, how you could ever make such a case for a life. Ever. I I, I don't... I'm not going to say I don't think you can do it. You can't do it. You can't. You can't look at Scripture and say, I can live the Christian life but not tell people about Jesus. You can't. It's impossible. It's not, it doesn't cooperate with the rest of Scripture or even this passage. Because think about this passage. How will the world persecute you on the account of the name of Jesus if you never talk about the name of Jesus? You won't be hated by the world if you don't bear witness about him. The world will love that, actually. And remember what happens. If the world loves what you're doing, what does that say about you? The world only loves those that are its own. We've got to be very careful here to think that we can have a Christian life where we're not bearing witness about Jesus. If we think that's possible, it may be a heavy indication that we actually still love the world and the world loves us. But for those of us who do bear witness about him, let us look at the final verses of this passage. I love it when Jesus tells us why he did what he did. He tells us, tells his disciples, don't give up. That's the temptation after hearing all of this, isn't it? If the world has all this hate towards the Father, towards Jesus, and towards us, we really don't feel like going on. But Jesus doesn't want us to give up. He just hands us the platter of his purpose for all of this in verse 1 of chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. His purpose for telling all these things is so that when we face this hate, we're not going to fall away from Jesus. Because it's going to get bad, at least for his disciples. Look at how he describes it in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Then he tells us again why. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But jump back to verse 2. Put out of the synagogues? That's the entire life of a Jewish person. Everything revolves around that. They're going to kill you, not only kill you, but say that they're offering service to God while they kill you? Again, how absurd is this? We're back to the irrationality of sin, aren't we? We have those who don't know God killing those who do know God, thinking they're serving God as they kill them. It's crazy. Those who hate God killing those who love God, thinking that they're worshiping God as they do it. Completely illogical. But that's what sin does. That's what a life of not knowing God looks like. That's what a life of hating God looks like. So what can we do? What are we going to do so that we don't give up, right? That's what Jesus says. I don't want you to give up. I want to finish and close out our time by giving us four encouragements for endurance real quick. Four encouragements for endurance. 
Jesus tells us here in verse 4 at the very end, right? I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told these things, them, to you. Right? So we can pull out four soul-comforting truths from this passage to encourage us as we endure the Jesus-hating world around us. Number one, remember Jesus was hated first. You aren't alone in this hate. In fact, our Lord took on a greater hate than any of us will ever have to bear. Right? And he told us this all the way back at the beginning in, in verse 18. If the world hates you, know this. Know that it hated me first. The rest of the New Testament is filled with language of the disciples, the apostles going out and saying, it's a joy to share in the sufferings of Jesus. He was hated first, and it's a joy to be hated like he was. In fact, we've been reading through Acts a little bit at home with the kids, and it's in Acts chapter 4, right? Peter and John get imprisoned, and then they get beat, they get told not to talk about Jesus, then they get released. And you know what it says? It says, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer like Jesus, or suffer in the name of Jesus. If we could just grasp onto that a little bit, right? That we could rejoice that we share in what was done to Jesus first. So first, remember Jesus was hated, and you can keep moving forward in this world. Number two, trust the helper who has been given to you. Right? Again, you're not alone in your experience of hatred because Jesus first felt it in the past, but in the present now, you've been given a helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And he reminds you of Jesus. He bears witness to you about Jesus. And as you learn to keep in step with the Spirit, you will grow to trust his witness rather than what the world's telling you to chase after. Number three, expect a harvest. Don't hear me wrongly here. I'm not saying that you yourself will necessarily see a great harvest of people come to know Christ. You may only sow the seed that produces a harvest years later. Right? That's biblical. But look at what he told us in verse 20. At the very end. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There's the hate. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. There's an expectation from Jesus here that there are going to people, be people who keep his word and who respond positively to the gospel message. We should expect a harvest. Though the hatred of the world to us many times might seem overwhelming and might seem hopeless, Jesus tells us the gospel will go forth and it will bear fruit. Let me just share one quick example of this. Like I said, I was in class this past weekend and uh, one of our, it's funny, one of our Uh, they call them fellows, but they're kind of like a TA to the professor comes in and shares her testimony. And this is an older lady. I mean, she's all grayed hair, and she walks in, and it's very odd because all of the TAs are doctoral students. And it's kind of odd. You don't usually see people at that age finally doing doctoral work, but she shares her testimony. This lady was in the medical field for over 30 years as a physician, family doctor. I think she was a physician's assistant living in a homosexual lifestyle. And she said, eight years ago, she went to a church building and she walked in knowing she was going to give it to them. So she walked in with the person she was living with, very clear, their message they were trying to send as they walk in the door. And the moment she walks in, somebody hugs her and says, we're glad you're here. 
And she goes and she sits in the pew and she sits through the service and the sermon's being preached and all of a sudden she just starts weeping and she doesn't even understand it. She really doesn't. She doesn't understand what's going on. And they, they do an altar call and she comes forward and all of a sudden people start putting their hand on her from behind and the pastor comes to her and says, what can I pray for you for? And she said, I didn't even know what to say. She said, the only words I could get out is, I am so unworthy. She retired from her job. She got saved, obviously. She got, at that point, she retired from her job. Now she's doing doctoral work in biblical counseling and seeking to use the rest of the, her years, whatever she has, to serve the Lord in that way. The gospel will bear fruit. Expect a harvest. God is changing people's lives through the witness of Jesus. Let that encourage you that anybody at any age, at any type of lifestyle, can come to know Jesus. And last, hope in eternity. Now we may have to dig a little deeper here, but just look at verse 24 real quick. Jesus tells us that they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Right, so he's explaining sin, hate for God, guilt. Now we're like, well, where's the hope in that, Sam? What's the flip side of that? What's the flip side of verse 24? Those who love God, those who love Jesus, are declared not guilty. While those who hate Jesus, those of the world, come to their deathbed, they find judgment. When we who belong to Jesus come to our deathbed, we obtain glory. We love the Lord until our day comes. And we will find ourselves rewarded for it. We will find glory. We will find eternity with him. So as we set our eyes on eternity, we can have that push us forward to bear witness about Jesus in this life. So my friends, as you remember these encouragements, I hope they remind you, don't give up. Don't give up. Look to the past. Remember what was done to Jesus first, that you share in his sufferings. Look at your present. Trust the help that has been given to you, the spirit of truth. Look also at the world around you and expect a harvest, that there will be those who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look to your future, knowing that one day you will be declared not guilty, regardless of the world around you being guilty. You will not be found guilty and you will spend eternity with him. The world will hate, but we will endure. Trust Jesus, and don't give up. Let's pray.